0: Two. Excellent. Open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 9, as we continue in the Thin Spaces series. We're going to read verses 32 through 43 together. Mikey, get off your phone. Okay. <laughs> You want me to talk louder for you? Yeah, please. I can do that. Acts chapter 9, verse 32. As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. Immediately, Anas got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. She was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please, come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. This is the word of the Lord. What a good story. Um, None of you were holding out on a similar testimony when I held the mic out, were you? Just a casual, dead raising. We're continuing this Thin Spaces series. And so we can go back to our graphic slide if you want. And last week, uh, Pastor Eric talked about 1 Kings 19. Any of you remember that story? Shout out if you do a single word of remembrance. Elijah. Whisper, the still, small voice. Coming right after the fire and the tornado, the wind and the earthquake. And he talked about how sometimes God shows up in ways that are a little more subtle than what we would ask before. And one of the things that we did last year... When we preached a sermon called "Thin Spaces" was, or "Thin Places," was was built around the Transfiguration of Jesus Christ, and so we looked at three characteristics of Jesus' Transfiguration, and we talked about stories that paralleled some of those things. This year, "Thin Space," "Thin Places," Part Two, we're actually doing a similar thing. All of these sermons, though the stories are not directly about Jesus, are built on characteristics of Jesus' life. You may not have picked up on it, but last Sunday was in some ways an incarnation sermon. The incarnation of Jesus is when he is born, right? Of the Virgin Mary in a quiet, small, little town named Bethlehem with no fanfare, weak and humble and poor. Elijah had just called down fire that had consumed the altar that he had built, even the water that it was drenched in. And he slayed the prophets of Baal with a sword. And he was anticipating that this powerful work of God would transform all of Jerusalem out of Jezebel's manipulative clutches and back to the ways of the Lord. And instead, he was given a death sentence. So he fled and he was afraid. And God told him, it's not always in the big and the loud in the aggressive, in the violent, but I need you to be attentive to the still, to the small, to the quiet, to the incarnation that we were prepared for of Jesus Christ come. And then, what does God tell Elijah to do? I'm testing. I, I it was a. I loved your sermon last week. Just testing their ears. Any remembers? He told them to anoint a king and to take on a man named Elisha, who was supposed to follow after him. And the power of God was made evident not only in the still, small voice, but in a succession plan. So the first Sunday of Thin Places, part two, was largely about incarnation in a kind of subtle way. This week, we're talking about the life of Jesus Christ. A teacher of mine often says, why... Did Jesus not just come, die, take all of our sins, and go? Because wouldn't that have been just as effective at removing our sin from us, right? When he died on the cross, all of our sin was taken up by him, brought to the grave with him, and then he raised up from the dead alive to give us resurrection life with him. Why did he wait 30 years to do it? Any answers? (laughs) So we can relate to him, a succession plan. plan. I heard some other whispers out there. So he could experience life life and maybe so that we could experience his life. We're talking about life. The life of Jesus itself is a thin place. In Acts, we see a very thin place. Agree? Yes? There's a man who's been crippled for eight years. And with a simple word, he's walking. He picks up his mat. There's a woman, poor, most likely, based on her circumstances, who dies. She's put in an upper room. And now they say that Joppa is close to Lydda. I can assure you they did not have cars. It was not that close. By the time the messengers get to Lydda where Peter is, he gets back. Her body has been sitting in this upper room for at least a time. And yet she's raised from the dead. And these miracles are evidence of a thin place. And what do we mean when we say a thin place? I think we mean a few things, right? A thin place is a place where the lines between two realities are getting blurred, right? Where there used to be a chasm of separation, now there's actually a connection. Or you can imagine like a fabric, right, that maybe once was thick and now has been worn thin so that you can see through it. So what are the thin things that are happening here in these miracles, these signs of greater realities? I think one is this. I think we can say as we talk so often about the kingdom of God that heaven itself... Came to earth in this moment. We can also talk about the thinness of life, the life giving word of God coming to the dead and the dying, and the discrepancy being shaken, being stirred, being brought close. I think there's also a great thinness that you see in this story where doubt is now brought closer to faith. You see this? In the miracle, in the thin place, the people saw, they heard the testimonies, and they began to believe. Doubt brought close to faith, heaven brought close to earth, life brought unto death. What was apart now coming close, death itself being scattered aside. But what else was thin about this moment? What else was the line blurred? My argument is that the life of Jesus and the life of Peter became very thinly distinguished. Turn with me to John chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. While you're flipping, I'll start to read since it's up on the screen already. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals... Now there is in Jerusalem near the sheep gate a pool, which is in Aramaic called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five colored colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. 30 more years than Peter's guy, if we're counting. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, (laughs) which I think is kind of funny, (laughs) the invalid replied. He's being very polite. I just say, yeah, (laughs) duh. (laughs) I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and roll up your mat. And immediately Aeneas got up. Turn with me to Mark chapter 5, verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with them. There's an interlude that also has a lot of similarities. A woman who is bleeding for 12 years, who touches the edge of his cloak and is healed. The story continues. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house, Jairus, some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But he put them all outside and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and he went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. And Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. And he went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room, and all the widows stood around him, a great commotion, crying, showing him the robes and clothes that Dorcas had made for them so Peter sent them all out and he got on his knees and he prayed and turning towards the dead woman he said Tabitha get up and she opened her eyes and seeing Peter she sat up he took her by the hand and he helped her to her feet and she walked You see, the place between the life of Peter and the life of Jesus got very blurry, got very thin. Now, I want to look at Jesus' life itself as a thin place. Jesus says a statement that's really profound. He says, I do nothing that I do not see the Father doing. And he talks about this thing all the time called the kingdom of God. Now, who here has taken days of the kingdom? Who here feels somewhat confident that they could articulate what the kingdom of God is? That was less hands than the first one. (laughs) But that's appropriate because it's kind of a big thing. It's kind of hard to just wrap up. One of the best ways that I've come to understand the kingdom of God, if I only get one sentence to say, is just where the word of God is obeyed. That's the kingdom of God, where God's word, God's will is obeyed. And you can actually see this all the way back in creation, right? When God creates, he speaks. And what he speaks from his mouth comes into being, right? And it becomes the reality around him, the reign, the rule, the kingdom of God. And it's not until Adam and Eve choose to do what? disobey the word of God. In another way of speaking, they choose not to be in accordance with the word of God. Destruction, death, chaos rears its ugly head once again. The work of God's restoration, we call it restoration because it's not really creating something new as much as it is restoring that word that already was, even though he's making new things in the midst of it. So the kingdom of God, where the reign of God is present, is where the word of God is obeyed, where the will of God is in conjunction with reality, where a thin space exists. Who is the word of God? Jesus. Does Jesus obey himself? (laughs) Kind (laughs) of. Sort of a weird thing to ask. Of course he does. He He does what he does. Who is he obeying, though? He's obeying the Father. Everything that I do, I do with the Father. What the Father says, I do. We've got this up. Jesus gave them this answer. He says, very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing because whatever the Father does, the Son does also. And so, wherever the Son goes... The will of the Father is present. The word of the God is active and being obeyed. And therefore, the kingdom of God is at hand, at least in the life of Jesus. Jesus himself is a living, thin place. Heaven and earth come together. And so, if you want to be a thin place, what do you do? You do what Jesus did. Peter did his own thing, and it turned out super cool. Not at all. (laughs) Did you hear those stories? What did Peter do? He did the same actions. He used almost exactly the same words. He went to some new cities because Jesus told him to. He just did what Jesus did. That's all he did. Nothing more, nothing less. How long was Jesus' prayer? You remember? He said, Talitha kumi, which is a certain amount of Aramaic words. (laughs) Two, which translates to, little girl, I say to you, arise. Little girl, I say to you, arise. How many words did Peter use? Tabitha, get up. So in fact, he did less than Jesus did, (laughs) but in the exact same manner. Why? Why did Peter do what Jesus did? I mean, it's an obvious answer, because he should, because he was supposed to. But there's a somewhat cultural disconnect that we have in our relationship to Jesus that Peter did not lack. Because Peter was Jesus's, Disciple. Say the word disciple. Say the word rabbi. Do any of you have a rabbi? Yes. Thank you, Lee. Who's your rabbi? No, 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 (laughs) no. Careful. If I was your rabbi, you'd follow me everywhere I went, and I don't think you want to do that. The rabbi-disciple relationship is something we talk a lot about. We talk a lot about discipleship. I don't know if we get it. Because when Jesus is talking about discipleship, right, when he calls Peter and all of those others who follow him, he says, this is an ericism. He likes to, Eric, I love that you do this. You always get things wrong. So I'm going to get some things (laughs) wrong real quick. He says, Peter, come and take my class. Right? He said, Peter, I've got a sweet YouTube video to show you. Actually, I recorded a master class. You can watch it in your own time. Right? What does he say? Come, follow me. When Paul is uh, encouraging the tur- churches, he says, be people who take Sunday evening classes about Jesus. He says, be people who are pretty committed to your daily devotions. He says, be imitators of Jesus Christ. To be a disciple of Jesus or a disciple of any rabbi, right? And this was just the waters that the people of Israel swam in. To be a disciple of Jesus is to say, I want to think the way Jesus thought. I want to feel the way Jesus felt about things. I want to do the things Jesus did and to pursue the things Jesus pursued. God's power revealed to Elijah was not in the fire. It was not in the wind. It was not in the earthquake. It was in a still small voice that said, here's what you're going to do. You're going to continue following me, doing the work according to my will that I set before you, and you're going to have somebody named Elisha come after you and do the exact same thing. He's going to learn from you. He's going to walk with you. He's going to follow you. He's going to understudy you. Your thoughts will become his thoughts. And this phrase that has inundated my life The dust of the feet of the rabbi will go on his. A friend of mine who is a a brilliant man, one of my most significant teachers, was in Jerusalem. And he was at a small gathering, a classroom. um, And one of the the world's uh, Jewish scholars, one of the world's leading Jewish scholars, was there teaching and speaking. And this Jewish scholar (coughs) said something Along these lines, this is recollection from my friend. So bear with me if it's not word for word. But he said, Christians talk about being disciples. I question it. What right do you, and he looked at my friend because he knew he was a Christian, (laughs) have to say that? If you claim to be a disciple of Jesus and you don't read the four Gospels at least once a week, every year, all year, you are a liar. You couldn't possibly know Jesus well enough to be like him if you didn't read the Gospels once a week, every week. (laughs) Whoa, (laughs) okay. Slow down, man. My friend took it to heart, and he said, that's a little extreme, but I'm going to try. I'm at least going to do it once every quarter. And he read the Gospels every quarter, and lo and behold, his whole life changed, right? And now he goes around, and he has students. uh, He teaches high schoolers who are about the age, likely of Peter and the other disciples, when they started following Jesus. And he tells them this. He says, do you want to be like Jesus? Do you want to be a disciple of Jesus? Well, I challenge you. Read the Gospels. Are they more important than the other parts of the Word? No, not at all. But read the Old Testament. Read Paul's letters. Read the prophets. All that the same. But do read the Gospels. Try it. Once a quarter. Come back to me three years from now. That's how long the disciples walked with Jesus. And if your life isn't the same, I'll buy you a car. Or is the same, I'll buy you a car. (laughs) Guess how many cars he's bought. Why? Because when you walk and you know your rabbi and you become to be like him, right, that's the goal. That's the plan. We talk a lot about discipleship. The reality that we need to reckon with daily in our own personal lives. And don't treat this as a judgment against other people. Treat this as a judgment against yourself. The reality that we need to reckon with is that far more often we are consumers of Jesus, not disciples of Jesus. I want to come and I want to get from Jesus what I can. And in fact, he offers salvation, right? Is discipleship and salvation the same thing? I don't, maybe. (laughs) Work that out. (laughs) But his call for us is to be his disciples. He says not many will be willing to do it. You'll have to carry your cross, you'll have to follow me, you'll have to go where I go, you'll have to think what I think, you'll have to say what I say. I would much rather have a Jesus who I can treat like a teacher at a school that I'm familiar with. Jesus says, I'm going to walk down the road and I'm going to encounter some lepers and I'm going to touch those lepers and 11 of them are going to be healed, all of them, and only one is going to come back and give me the credit. And I want to say, Lord, teach me about how cool it is that you touch lepers instead of touching lepers. How badly do you want to be like your rabbi? Maybe another question that you can ask yourself is, who are your rabbis? Who are the ones that you actually are trying to make your life like? Anybody who's a musician probably has a musician who they've really studied, who they've really favored and tried to learn exactly how they play. And they can understand in guitar, like, if this bend sounds like a Joe Satriani bend, this bend sounds like a Steve Vai bend. And anybody who doesn't pay attention is like, you're crazy. There's no difference. And you're like, there is a difference. I can tell. Maybe you're an athlete, right? And you're a, you're a golfer. I've been working with David on his golf swing. It's legitimately getting better, Right? And you can, you can see the difference between this swing, right, and between this swing, right? And all of you are like, you did the same swing. And I'm like, no, <laughs> they're not the same swing. I've studied this. I can see the nuances and the details. How much do you want to be like your rabbi? Do you know the nuances? Do you know the details? Enough to train, right? We just started college football season. Any Colorado State fans out there? Woo! Go Wolverines. <laughs> get out of here. <laughs> do you know how hard college football players train? Now they get paid, maybe, in the NAL stuff. But just for the love of it, do you know how hard they train? It's phenomenal, the effort that they put in, Right? Offensive linemen spending all day slamming their heads against each other, working on their karate moves with their hands and the littlest nuances of their footwork. I can't do it. How badly do you want to be like your rabbi? Do you even call him your rabbi? If you want your life to be a thin place, like Jesus's was, then you need to live a life. Like Jesus lived. Do you want to see the things Jesus saw? Raise your hand if you would like the lame people to be healed in our presence. To be able to share that testimony from the microphone every week. Dead rising. Blind seeing. Poor being brought into a place of sustenance. Right? Of course. If yes, then we need to do the things that Jesus did. And if yes... Then we need to start knowing Jesus at the depth that his disciples knew him, so that we, when we encounter a situation, rolling off our tongues are the words that he spoke. And if no, then we should stop saying we're his disciples because we're not. I want to be his disciple. I want to dig my hand, right? (laughs) In that bowl that is the life of Jesus every day. Oh, my daily objective to be today I'm going to give my all to know Jesus. To be like him in every way I want to live the exact life of my rabbi. Amen? I think there are two things that really get in our way. And really one. And that one is Doubt. In all of its forms, I encounter a troubling situation and I doubt that Jesus' way is actually good. Familiar with this? Have you felt this before? I could give my money, my time, my energy, my effort to this person in need, but I'm a little low on cash this week and, you know, I hear the stock market's going up. What's Jesus' way? I doubt that Jesus' way is good. It is good. I also doubt that he'll empower me to do it. Right? You are a vessel that is filled. Right? Another teacher uses a glove. Puts a glove on the table and he says, Glove. I wish I had a glove. Glove, go turn the lights off. And the glove sits there. Because it's just a glove. Go open the door. Then do it. But as soon as the power of the Spirit, right, fills the glove, you are a glove, everything that you need to accomplish those tasks is there. Will the Lord empower me? In the times when I step out in faith, will he actually show up? Yes. Yes, he will. But, Lord, I doubt. Well, Lord fill me with faith? Let me you. Take that step anyway. I doubt that it's worth the cost. That's the third one. I believe the way of the Lord is good. I know he'll empower me to do it. But just like Elijah, even if he follows through in all those ways, I'm not so sure Jezebel is going to like me very much. And I don't know if I want to deal with that. And doubt uses all of its side doors to creep in and detract you from the way of God because the way of God and the will of God and the way of Jesus is the way that God's kingdom overcomes the kingdoms of the world. I don't want to doubt and I don't want you to doubt. I want you to be filled with faith. All I can do to help you be filled with faith is continue to tell you about who Jesus is, about what his life was, and about what the life of those who follow him is like And I can assure you that it's phenomenal, and it's good, and it's better. And the other thing that is tricky that's just worth acknowledging is what I call contextual translation. In other words, Jesus lived in a time and in a place. He was a male. Some of us are not in that time and place and are not male, right? We have different roles. We have different responsibilities. We have different things to do. And so I can't just be faithful in my work and go take up a bunch of teenagers as disciples and walk around uh, Israel, as fun as that would be. And so we do have to translate it to our world. But here's what contextual translation means and why it's so beautiful and not distracting and not detracting. Contextual translation means this. It means God put you specifically in a spot To be Jesus Christ in a way that only you ever in history can be. I could talk about how to contextually translate for your specific set of circumstances. But you know who knows those circumstances better? You. And you know who knows them even better than you do? God does. And so if you commit yourself to pursuing the will of the Lord through reading the word, through spending time listening to his spirit... And to being attentive to his will in the places that you go, you yourself are better equipped than anybody to be Christ and to see a kingdom come there. Dorcas go all the way back, is a perfect model of this. Why, Dorcas? Who was Dorcas? You remember? She was a disciple. She followed Jesus. And says she was always doing good and helping the poor. Did she live where Jesus lived? Nope. Did she even have the miraculous giftings that Jesus had? Not as far as we know. But what did she see Jesus do that she knew she could do too? Help the poor. And when Peter gets there, who greets him? Do you Remember? All the widows. And you might remember a woman in that time was pretty much property of her husband and lost the property that her husband owned as soon as the husband died. And so widows in ancient Israel were far, far, far worse off than we usually give them credit. <laughs> but they had Dorcas. And when Peter there is there, they show him. Crying, the robes and the clothing that she had made for them. Do you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, "If somebody hits you, turn the other cheek." If somebody says to walk a mile, walk. And if somebody asks for, you think she heard it, and so what she do? She made clothes. For the widows. And the kingdom of God was present there. God could have raised any number of people from the dead. And yet he observed the faithfulness of one, the presence of the kingdom of God, in a poor woman whose poor name was Dorcas. And he said, I am going to choose this one to send Peter to, and I'm going to bring her back from the grave. Contextual translation means be like Dorcas. Do what you know to do according to the will of Jesus that you've observed as you've committed your every single step to follow him as best as you can. That teacher who I mentioned who read the word worked for his whole life to be able to define disciple, and it's almost as hard of a word to define as kingdom of God, maybe not quite, but close. And he came up with these two things that are at least handholds for us to hold on to, and so I want to give you these, and I want you to hear these um, as opportunities, right, as calls for your own life. A disciple is first this, someone who showcases intense and intentional commitment, That means it's not half-hearted. It's not half-baked. As Jesus says, you can't serve two masters. I can't serve Jesus on Sundays. Pick your poison on the weekdays. It's intense. It's intentional. That means it's not occasional. That means it's not intermittent. That means it's not when I feel like it. That means my rabbi is getting up this morning, and if I don't follow him, I'm going to be left in the dust. So I better get going. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to get to know him better. And then the second thing is intense intentional commitment to become. This is important for us. Not to be, but to constantly be becoming. More and more like their rabbi. How deep is the love of God? (laughs) How wide is it? This is how wide my kids say it is. Actually, their arms are only like that one. How high is it? Can you be like all of Jesus? Of course not. But what you can is you can be committed intentionally, daily, intensely to be becoming more and more like Jesus every day. To use yesterday as the measuring stick behind you and Jesus himself as the guide in front of you. To walk and look like your rabbi. And in doing so, become a thin space yourself. Commit to read the Gospels. Commit to pray. Commit to do the things he did. To try your best to notice the things he notices. To converse the way he converses. How are you speaking? To think through things the way he thinks through things with the priorities that he teaches and that he exemplifies. So as a following, as a closing thing, we're not going to sing after this. As a closing thing, I want you to stand to your feet. This is a, uh, a, a, a phrase meant for repeating. So I'll say it, you repeat it. We'll run through it two times. This last part, the dust of the, of the feet of the rabbi, is... Is built on the wilderness of of Judah, right, where the dust is like flour. So if you're walking behind somebody, they kick it up, right, like sand, right on your feet, and it gets stuck to your shoes or your pants. Find a rabbi. rabbi. Who's your rabbi going to be? Follow him. him. Walk with him. him. Drink Drink his words like you're thirsty and always be covered in the dust of His feet. Find a rabbi. Follow Him. Walk with Him. Drink His words like you're thirsty and always be covered in the dust of His feet. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May He cause His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you in your sending through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Amen.